The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and the Bonhoeffer Project, led by Bill Hull, hosted a track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Bill Hull and his co-author, Ben Sobels, have written a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Since it's a discipleship.org resource, we've made available for free the primer for this book. The premise of the book is that many people try to make disciples without first making sure that people believe the right gospel, one that leads to discipleship. It's called Upstream Theology, according to the authors. This is the discipleship gospel, which is really the gospel that Jesus preached. In their book, they clearly lay out the gospel that Jesus preached according to scripture and how you can teach this gospel that leads to discipleship. Download the primer for this book at discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel for your free primer. Now here's today's track session from the Bonhoeffer Project. I'm the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. I've been there about six and a half years. Now I transitioned out of 15 years of student ministry uh, and then eight years as an executive pastor and now did everything in my power to convince God that he was not going to call me as a senior pastor because I work with too many of them. And uh, he reconvinced me of his call in my life and put me in a place where we've seen him do incredible things. And so there was a lot of breaking and adjusting and forming in me to get me to that position. Um, and I also said this, I've been in several First Baptist churches. Maybe you've been in a First Baptist, First Methodist, First Pres, First something. There's a stigma that goes with some of that language in our past. And I said, I will never go back to a First Baptist church. Check that out. So I'm not going to be a senior pastor. And I'm not going to a First Baptist church. So let me reintroduce myself. I'm Jim Thomas. I'm the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. God has a great sense of humor, but more importantly, he has a great sense of call and a purpose for our lives and where he wants to use us. And can I tell you, I've been in very small churches, I've been in very large churches. This would be kind of a medium-sized church population-wise. But can I tell you that everything clicked when I got there. And God started to do something in this church, as Denny mentioned, that next year will be 190 years old. Now, that, I joke that we still have charter members. Some of them act like it. And they've done stuff the same way for a long, long time. And so when you come in with a fresh vision and build a team around that vision and start leading your people somewhere, things can, let me put it this way. We talked about this in our conference the last two days with the Bonhoeffer Project. It can build some tension. And one of the things that I've learned in this process of disciple making is not to run away from the tension, but to embrace the tension. Because it's in the midst of the tension that God does his greatest work. Not only in the people in the congregation, but in your life as a leader as well. And so there have been times where I've been told what I needed to do differently because that's the way they've always done it. I've been told, man, we're on your side and there's this tension of trying to love all of those people in the same place and lead them to a desired end. And I think in disciple making, that's one of the things that we fail in a lot. That we jump in the middle of a process of knowing the Great Commission, knowing Matthew 28, like Bill said in the last session, and we jump in the middle of that, but we never tell our people where we want them to go, right? Well, we want you to be a disciple. What does that mean? Well, that's a great question in and of itself. It's one of the questions we help you to answer in the Bonhoeffer Project. The other side of that is this, is that if we don't give a clear definition of that and we don't give a clear destination for our people, we'll never lead them there. 
And so that sounds pretty simplistic, but as I talk to pastors around our state and other pastors around the country and the world that we work with through the Bonhoeffer Project, we're finding that some of these foundational things have not been put in place and therefore we're just running around cul-de-sacs, folks, chasing ourselves. And here's what happens when that becomes the paradigm in our churches. People create their own agendas. When you're not leading them somewhere biblically, people will create the end destination for you. And then as Bill said in the last session, then they start leading you. And it's not a hierarchy thing. It's following Jesus and the command that he's given us, really the only command he's given us, other than loving one another, but the only commission that he's given us, and that is to make disciples. And here's something I think in our first big session today, one thing that was brought out, and I think, I think it's pretty incredible, is that we're not making disciples for us. In fact, Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes disciples for somebody else. We make disciples for Jesus. We just happen to be privileged enough to be called into a leadership role to help lead people in that direction. And that's a powerful, powerful truth. So if you're just joining us, welcome to the Bonhoeffer Project. Denny shared a little bit about how uh, process-wise we're driven. We're driven around cohorts. We're driven to help leaders engage. When my brother said over here, the gospel, and we're going to talk about that in this session, and toward a specific uh, contextual plan for your area of ministry. And so we're not telling you, here are our five steps, go do them. We look at the biblical background of what it means to follow after Jesus. And then we work with you to develop what's going to happen in your culture. Do we have anybody in this session that's from out of this country? Anybody from a different country in here? How about anybody above? Where are you from? Poland. Poland. Okay, Poland. I've, actually, on my dissertation work, I did some work with some people in Poland. That's awesome. Um, who's from above the Mason-Dixon line? Okay, that's another country. Um, just kidding. I just alienated a quarter of the room right there. Sorry. Sorry. No, 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 no. But it's a different culture, isn't it? We help plant, uh, start a, a church plant in Portland, Maine. Can I just make a blanket statement? Portland, Maine is different than Fayetteville, Georgia. Okay? And the people from north of the Mason-Dixon line understood exactly what I was talking about right there. So we have to understand the culture in which we are making disciples, right? We have to understand not only the general culture, but the culture of our local church. A First Baptist church that's 190 years old is going to look a lot different than a church plant. So you have to understand the context which you are in to be able to effectively lead people to the end result in which you're pointing them. Okay? So the Bonhoeffer Project helps you to do that by intentionally engaging with you, but also engaging you with other leaders. And therein lies another point of that tension of rubbing against one another. I, had, I was in a cohort system in my PhD. And we had, I got a PhD in leadership, and we, we had uh, business leaders, we had educators, and we had pastors all in the same cohort. Talk about worlds colliding. But in the end, it kind of looked a lot like the church. And as different ideas, different mentalities bumped up against each other, it made us better at what we were going to do. And that's what the cohort system does. So what is the vision of the Bonhoeffer Project? Thank you for asking. This is the vision. World revolution through local movements of disciple making. That's our vision. World revolution through local movements of disciple making. Here's the coolest thing. One of the coolest things to me about being a part of this organization is that everybody except Bill, because Bill, Bill's the guy, but everybody except Bill on our national leadership team is a local pastor. 
So we're not talking just parachurch living up in the tower up here, kind of saying, hey, use our thing. No, 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 we're doing it on the ground. And we're struggling on the ground. And then we're taking it into a larger context that God's open for us to walk with you toward that end. So this idea of world revolution through local movements of disciple making, we could all get up here and we will in a few minutes and tell some stories about the topic we're going to talk about because we've experienced it. So here's our thesis. All who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. Let me, let me just stop there and repeat. All who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. So what's the problem then with this? And you see the title of this session is that the gospel you believe determines the disciples you make. That's actually the back end of what we're going to talk about. And we'll get back to that in a second. But this creates a problem. And the problem begins with how we approach discipleship. Now, as Christian leaders, whether you're a pastor, you're, you lay people in the room who are leading in their context of ministry, many of us begin in the middle of the process. We start with what the Bonhoeffer Project calls midstream or downstream by trying to establish a model, a strategy, or a plan for making disciples. But in doing so, we miss a critical step. In fact, as I was thinking through this, people who come and ask me about the Bonhoeffer Project, a lot of times start with this. This is the question. What curriculum do you use? Right? And when they come to me and they ask about, we get into a disciple-making conversation, and they're a leader, what curriculum do you use? Do you like Ogden stuff? Yeah, I actually use Ogden stuff. Do you like this stuff? Do you like this stuff? Yeah, all that stuff's pretty good. Do you like that stuff? No, I wouldn't go with that. But whatever that is, that's where that conversation starts, right? But that is downstream. Now, this is kind of a, if you can see this. This is kind of our map of what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project that speaks to this issue of the gospel. Many people start midstream. They start with this idea, we have to make disciples. So they get models, strategies. They try to put definitions together. And then they quickly move downstream to the plan. And they, they try to go out and buy a plug and play thing for their, for their context or whatever. And they buy content, curriculum, or they get a schedule of how that's going to look like. And, and then they get personnel around that and they start doing that. And all of a sudden they start struggling with certain areas. Now, what the Bonhoeffer Project has done, and I think this is one of the unique things about us, is we don't start midstream, we've gone back upstream. We've gone to the headwaters of this river analogy, which is Scripture itself. And once we go to Scripture itself, we quickly move into this idea of the gospel. And this is why. The problem with starting midstream or downstream is that we bypassed a foundational element in making disciples, and that is the gospel that we preach. Now, you may have seen it on the sign outside. I don't know. It's kind of over in this corner over here. But this is one of our mantras, that the gospel we preach determines the disciples we produce. The gospel we preach determines the disciples we produce. So if you're a pastor, leader, Sunday school teacher, whatever you happen to be, life group leader, whatever you call the small groups in your church, ask yourself this question just silently. Please don't answer out loud. That's awkward. And you may be made fun of. What gospel do you preach? What does your gospel consist of? What is this good news that we all know about? And, and then let me ask you a second question. What's it producing? Do you see people in your congregation, in your ministry organization, actually living like Jesus? And not just living like Jesus and being formed with the character of Christ. Bill talked about that in the, in the first session. But actually loving others, which is the end of discipleship, Right? Bill said we were not just called to be disciples, we're called to make disciples. 
And so that will all be tempered on the gospel that you preach, that you teach. So what is the gospel that you're preaching or teaching producing? Well, Bill covered some of this ground in the first session on a question um, that was asked of him. I'm going to retread that a little bit for two reasons. Number one, it's in my notes. Are you all awake? Okay. And number two, it applies to this topic. So in the four Gospels and in Acts, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. Okay. If you've had any Greek, you know that. 260, 270 times in the Gospels, the four Gospels and Acts. It means follower. It's just a simple word that means follower. Now, following Acts 21.16, the writers of the New Testament no longer use the word methetes anymore to designate a follower of Jesus. But they started, as Bill said, to use reference terms. Some of those were believers, Christians, brothers, sisters, saints, and the church, ecclesia, right? So you have all these reference terms to the term used in the Gospels and in Acts, methetes, So what happened after Acts 21? Did disciples go away and we became something else? No, 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 no. It's just different words in that Greek setting specifically, like Bill said, that tied back to the original idea of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. So what's the point in all that? Well, there's no difference between a Christian and a disciple. There's no difference between the two. They're one and the same. See, if you're a Christ follower, the question is, isn't, are you a disciple? It's what kind of disciple are you? And here's, here's, here's what we've done. We've taken the issue of salvation and we've divided it. This is, uh, even in evangelical world, especially in evangelical world, we've relegated salvation to two different things, to having a conversion experience and then discipleship comes later. Here's a problem with that. Well, several problems with that. We can go down some rabbit holes here if we're not careful. But if we separate salvation into conversion and discipleship, we're saying that the end is the beginning. We're saying that when you pray a prayer or whatever you do here to place faith and trust in Christ, you've reached the end. And therefore, as a result, discipleship becomes optional. It becomes something for a higher class of Christian, maybe. Maybe for someone who's called to discipleship, someone who went to Bible college or someone who went to seminary, I mean seminary, or someone who did one of those things, right? And so the majority of our congregations are standing over here at the starting line. But if a couple of you want to move over here toward maturity and toward mission and toward all these other things, then that's great. But when we divide this up, that's not necessary. There's... Huge problem with that. It's not what Jesus taught. In fact, it waters down the bigger idea of the gospel to praying a prayer to go to heaven. And it leads us either to be rule keepers or law keepers or rule breakers. I'm in the kingdom, right? I prayed that prayer. I'm in and in the moment. Now I can live however I want, right? Because I'm in. When you come to Christ as your Savior, and we know this, You're transformed from the inside out, right? And when we're transformed from the inside out and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in believers, then he starts to form the character of Christ in us. And he does that for a purpose. And he does that for the purpose of taking this gospel to the world, making more disciples. So those who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. Now, now here's the issue, and we find it in Luke 9.23. Jesus said to everyone, this is a very familiar text, but I want you to hear it in this context of the the gospel we preach determines the disciples we produce. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, okay, there's an invitation to follow him, methetes. 
Let him deny himself. Now, to deny yourself is the essence of repentance, isn't it? It's a changing of your mind. It's a changing of worldview of who Jesus is, who we are, and who the, what, what the world is. And therefore, when we deny ourselves, it puts us in a position for God to change us. So let him deny himself, take up his cross. Now, this isn't an easy journey. That's Western Christianity, that you just pray a prayer, you'll go to heaven, everything will be provided for you, it's all going to be hunky-dory. Get in your Christian clique in your church and just exist until you die or Jesus comes back. That's a contemporary gospel, right? But Jesus said, oh, no, no, wait up, wait up. Deny yourself, so there's humility, there's humbling yourself before God, there's repentance. Take up your cross. Now be willing to suffer to the end, just like I did. If you don't believe that's in the gospel of Jesus, go to 1 Peter 4. And do your devotions out of this this week, out of that text this week, and see where God leads you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and what? This is crowd participation time. And what? <laughs> Good. Follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? One of the things we say in the Bonhoeffer Project is, is to live our lives as if Jesus were living them. So are you living your life by the power of his Holy Spirit as Jesus would live your life? Following in his example, doing what Jesus does. Take up, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So, begs a question, at least the one I wrote down. How is this separation of conversion and discipleship fleshed out in the Gospels that are being preached in the 21st century? Well, Bill in his book, Conversion and Discipleship, identifies six different contemporary Gospels that are being preached. And these are them. We call them the Gospels in Competition. And we're going to walk through each one of these really quick, and then we're going to get some of our leadership team up, to, up here, and we're going to kind of break some of this down before you have an opportunity to ask some questions. So, we have six different Gospels that are being proclaimed here, okay? The first is this, the forgiveness-only Gospel. We've kind of already kind of dipped our toe into that one, but I want to, I want to land here for a second. Now, the forgiveness-only Gospel tends to equate faith with agreement to a set of religious facts, right? In essence, the forgiveness-only Gospel is transactional, isn't it? It's not transformational. It's, okay, Jesus, you died on a cross for me. You rose from the dead for me. I'm really thankful that you did that. I'll pray a prayer and sign the contract over here so I can go to heaven, but that's where everything stops. And it becomes this transactional relationship, but there's a key word missing from the forgiveness-only gospel, and that is surrender. You see, because the gospel is bigger, and, and Ben Sobels has been in the room, Ben's in the back. Ben's going to talk on the discipleship gospel, this last gospel we talked about tomorrow morning, I believe, aren't you, Ben? Um, one of the things that we forget here is that the gospel, the biblical gospel, doesn't start at the point where we ask forgiveness for our sins. It starts with a much bigger concept. Really, it starts in Genesis 1-1 with that there is a kingdom in place. And if there's a kingdom in place, then there's a king. And that gives you a whole different picture of what the good news really is. And I'm not going to go through the rest of it because I want you to come back tomorrow morning and hear Ben. It's really, really good. Really good. So, the forgiveness-only gospel, this decision to agree is typically followed by a prayer or some other protocol after which a person is proclaimed a Christian forevermore. And the primary weakness of the forgiveness-only gospel is what it doesn't mention. Often this gospel covers the important topics of forgiveness and grace, but it makes no mention of repentance, gives no invitation to follow Jesus, and does not discuss obedience to Jesus that Scripture teaches is required for a life of discipleship. I came to Christ when I was 16 years old. 
I had about two years of just living however I wanted to live. Now, I grew up in church. So I grew up in a Methodist church. We ended up going to a Baptist church. You know, my, my parents, my mom was Baptist. My dad was Methodist. You know, or, Yeah. And so my, they went to the Baptist church for, for Bible study and worship and went over to the Methodist church for the dances. Amen. <laughs> that was awesome. So we started in the Methodist church because my dad grew up. We ended up in the Baptist church. They're kissing cousins anyway. And so we ended up there. And that's why I've grown up in church my whole life. And I heard the gospel for the first time when I was 16. And it was from a guy from outside of our church who came to a youth camp. And I knew at that point because of what God had done in my life and the suicide of a friend and another friend who had become an alcoholic at 16 that he was drawing me to himself and out of that lifestyle. And so I made a decision of faith at that point at that camp and came back and the church celebrated this. And then they didn't tell me what to do. And here I was for several years standing on the starting line of the forgiveness only gospel. Until some guys at my university that I went to grabbed me and pulled me into a room and taught me how to read the Bible. And they started forming spiritual disciplines in my life. And they pushed me out of my comfort zone. And they started to walk alongside me in my immaturity to help me to grow to be who God was calling me to be. And so I got a bigger picture of the kingdom than just the forgiveness only gospel. Second gospel is this is the gospel of the left or the left gospel. And the motive behind the left gospel is that is all about cultural relevance, right? We have to be relevant to our prevailing culture. It looks at deconstructing the gospel based on changing cultural norms. Uh, this is usually put into practice through social action. Now, the weakness of this gospel is that it is, as Bill says in Conversion and Discipleship, it's empty of real hope because they have abandoned the heart of the true gospel, that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is alive and active today, and that his truth is the only thing about Christianity that is truly relevant. And that does move us out into culture, as he spoke about in the first session. But when we start with culture and we don't start with Jesus, we've started in the wrong place. And our gospel can get turned upside down if we're really, really not careful. So it creates a detached social action without regard to truth. The third type of gospel, the prosperity gospel, is probably the fastest growing version of the gospel in the church today. It teaches that God guarantees health and financial wealth if we just have enough faith and practice some basic biblical principles. Uh, this gospel is a gospel of God management, if you will, and it leads to entitled disciples who simply need to claim what is theirs. He is the spiritual Walmart of the universe. And if we just claim what is ours, we can go take that and it can be ours. We plant churches in southern Brazil and, and one of the things that we ran into there, of course you have the Catholic church as the predominant uh, state religion in Brazil. And then the growth of the prosperity gospel is just ast astronomic. Most of these guys live, the pastors of these churches live in Sao Paulo or Rio or Brasilia. We're out not in the Amazon, we're way south, but we're out in smaller towns. Smaller cities in Brazil are like 500,000 people, right? Because everybody moves to the cities. I'll never forget going into a home of a lady who went to a prosperity gospel church. And honestly, folks, down there, it's mostly ladies. The men are detached. They're alcoholics. Ladies go to church. They feel validated. And I went into this, we went into this home and a lady's son had just died. And we were sharing the gospel with her. And she said, well, I went to my pastors and they just said I didn't have enough faith for my son to live. Now, how do you process that, right? 
because it sucked the air out of the room. Now her trust is destroyed in what the gospel is. Her trust is destroyed in spiritual leaders in her life. And yet here we are stepping into her life from another country telling her something different. Hopefully giving her a little hope. So again, prosperity gospel being the fastest growing gospel. Next one you, you may have heard of, the consumer gospel. And this promises to provide everything a person on the go needs. Convenience, speed, soundbite technology, instant results, tickling of the ears. This gospel creates self-indulgent disciples who treat Jesus and his church as a spiritual shopping mart where if their needs are met immediately, they, or aren't met immediately, they simply move on to another church or even another faith. How many of you have heard, well, I tried Christianity, that didn't work for me. So I went and tried this over here, right? I had a former pastor. I love this man. He's a great, godly man. And he had some folks who had visited our church for several weeks, and they came in and sat in his office. And this was their opening in to him. Now, this is what we're looking for in a church. And he said if he could have thought fast enough on his feet, he would have said this. Well, this is what I'm looking for in a church member. So if we're going to compare resumes here and see if this is going to fit or not, then here, let me have that opportunity as well. Now, praise the Lord, they stayed and God started doing a work in their life. But if not, here was, here was the thought. Well, we'll just go to the next one down the street and then the next one down the street and then the next one down the street. And the rabbit hole with that is they're never going to be formed into a, a disciple who follows after Jesus because they're too busy about getting their felt needs met than they are about surrendering and being a part of kingdom work, the consumer gospel. The right gospel, obviously, is opposite of the left gospel. That's how that works. Prioritizes correct doctrine, adherence to a rather narrow, uh, narrow moral code, and the exclusiveness of truth. What matters in life is knowing the right doctrines and having the right beliefs. In general, the right gospel takes a defensive posture and sees the world as a battleground where the good and right must take care, must take on the forces of evil. Those are other people, by the way. In that gospel, most often, often meaning liberal theology and left of center politics. And this gospel tends to create disciples who lead a partition life that is separated from the people they are called to reach. It's dangerous on many fronts, um, but we had a recent experience in my church I want to share with you. We have a lady, her husband, three kids joined our church. You could tell something was not right, um, not necessarily with them, but with their evaluation of our church. They went through our next step class, which is our membership class. They did all that type of stuff. They agreed to join the church. We have a church covenant that they signed. They signed that. We came up and uh, we have a day where we uh, present all of our new members. We do that once a quarter. And so we did that. And I said something from the pulpit that was not controversial. In fact, it was a sin of omission. It's what I, what I didn't say from the pulpit. I had mentioned one thing, but in her mind, I didn't mention the other thing. On the other side of what I said, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I, I mentioned this over here. I didn't mention this over here. And she was afraid that she had just gotten her kids into the same fundamental independent Baptist, whatever she grew up with, whose youth minister ended up raping girls in the youth ministry. That's her background. Because it was all about some type of moral code and not about following Jesus. And so she comes up to me after the service, after we introduce them to the church, and she's just bawling. What have I gotten my family into? I can't believe you didn't say this. And I'm like, that, that had nothing to do with what I was talking about. And we both breathe, or at least I did. And I tried to speak into her situation. Now, Here's the cool thing. I, I really don't have the background 
experientially to talk to her about the right gospel like that. I grew up in the forgiveness only consumer gospel, right? You pray to receive Jesus and then the church becomes the place where you come and get all your spiritual goods and services. That was my church, okay? Her church was the moral code church. So was our music, our worship pastor's church. And all of a sudden something else happened because a church member said something a year later, two years later, and it set her off on the same thing again. And he, because she had started singing in our choir, the worship pastor heard it and was able to step into that. And he was able to speak into her life because this, folks, is a, I mean, this is a key point. That was a moment for disciple making. Not a moment to move her on to another church where she feels more comfortable. It was a moment to help her to see truth, the gospel that we're going to talk about in a second, and to move her to a place of maturity and even healing. But you know what? Until she can bust through that wall of her past... She would never be able to see the true gospel. And our worship pastor, who actually knows a little theology, praise Jesus, worship guys. Man, knowing theology, that's just praise. I mean, God's Aslan's on the move. Amen. So I love Ronnie. He's he's an awesome guy. He's he's an awesome guy. Anyway, he was able to speak into her life, not only to talk her off the ledge, but to help her to step forward in her faith. And so all of these different, as we encounter people with these other gospels that have some type of foundation of truth in them, but kind of go sideways, one way up, down, right, left, those are opportunities for disciple making, right? Bill talked a little bit last session, a lot of bit last session about how we respond to people as Christians. And one of the things that I think we have to be careful of is to model the culture's response, right? I have people, and they may be in your church, I'm in the deep south, okay, I mean deep. Like, you cook sugar in your sweet tea. You know, you don't add it. You know, any, can, I, can I get a witness? Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. I'm in the deep south. And we have people that worship at the altar of Fox News. And we have people that worship at the altar of CNN. That is in Atlanta. And we have people that worship at all these different things. Guess what dialogue looks like in those contexts? Yeah. Screaming at one another, Right. So here are our options, and Bill mentioned these in the first session today. How do you respond to someone who doesn't think like you think that may have one of these other Gospels? Well, you can attack and act like the world. You can run away, this is what Bill said, or you can speak the truth in love and lead them. Now, if they're not willing to be led and they walk away, that's on them. But our response as leaders is to help them through that process. And to see a bigger picture of who God is and what it means to follow after him. Okay? So the last gospel, and I'm not going to do much on this because Ben's going to just camp in this lot tomorrow morning. And you guys, let me just say, you need to be here. Okay? That's not selling the project. You need to hear what he has to say tomorrow morning. Okay? It's revolutionary. It's changed my ministry. It's changed how I preach. Okay? But we call it the kingdom gospel here. The kingdom gospel simply defined is the proclamation of the rule and reign of Christ over all of life. And when you get that big picture, that umbrella of what the kingdom of God is about, then the plan of salvation fits in there and praying a prayer to go to heaven fits in there and following Jesus fits in there. But when you can put the umbrella of the kingdom of God over that, then you get a much bigger picture of what God's doing in history and in the world and in the future. And we get to live as kingdom citizens, no longer trying to earn our way in, but living out the benefits of being a child of God. It changes everything. So this gospel can also be called the discipleship gospel. It's one of the books that the Bonhoeffer Project has. Ben and Bill wrote that. 
and Bill will write, uh, walk through that in our next session tomorrow morning. So here's what I want us to do. I want to call up some of our, um, some of our uh, national leadership team uh, as I see them in the back. Ben, why don't you come on up? Um, Denny, uh, uh, Sandy is in the back. Um, we have three chairs. Y'all will do for now. If we can't get a right answer, then we'll, we'll call someone else up. Not that we're part of the right gospel. I didn't. Just went downhill with that really quick. Real quick, why don't you introduce yourself? We'll go this way since Sandy's still walking up. Why don't you start, Ben? Okay. Uh, my name is Ben Sobels. I'm the senior pastor or lead pastor at uh, Cypress Community Church in Salinas, California. Yeah. I'm Denny Heiberg, and I serve with a mission-sending organization called TMS Global. It's out of Atlanta, but I have the privilege of traveling around the country and the world training our, our own cross-cultural workers as well as national leaders. Amen. Sandy Mason, Phoenix, Arizona, planted a church there 60 years ago, Desert View Bible Church. Did you say 60 years ago? No, I said 16. 16. Oh, I was going, dude, you look good. I'm just saying, right? This is how it's going. I'm not. <laughs> Feeding you back, brother. All right, I want to just ask a couple questions. We'll just kind of, whoever wants to talk, whatever. What's the danger of starting, and we're going to go back to this slide so they can see what we're talking about. What's the danger of starting this disciple-making process midstream or downstream? What have you seen in your context in your local church? For me, it kind of... Uh, it discounts discipleship from the beginning and it discounts the gospel from the beginning because um, the gospel is all about Christ's death and resurrection, right? Who he is and his death and resurrection. But discipleship is also about dying to ourselves and living for Christ. So if I don't have a holistic uh, full picture of what salvation really is, that it involves conversion and discipleship, I kind of start dissecting things and discounting things and disconnecting things that are actually supposed to go together. So if I'm, if I'm living a life of discipleship, I'm living out the gospel every day. I'm dying to myself and, and living for Christ by the power of his spirit, which is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So there is a, there is a uh, holistic viewpoint. If I start splitting these things down, if I start discounting the gospel or separating the gospel from discipleship, I start living a disconnected life. Let me use the, uh, the image of the river that we're, we're sharing with you. No matter where you are on the river, if there is pollution in the water at the source, you're done. And that's what's happened, brothers and sisters. And regardless of whether you leave this this uh, forum uh, engaging in the Bonhoeffer project in a cohort or not, you're going to have to deal with this. And that's why uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Jim is, is uh, being very, very clear about tomorrow morning, because the discipleship gospel is the, is the key to, to the way of life that Jesus has called us to. Because when I came to Christ, uh, I thought that salvation, that as, as Jim said, he was, he was, uh, at the finish line. And, and that's what I thought because no one told me that uh, there was anything about this life. I heard a pastor say it this way. I came to realize that I gave Jesus my afterlife, but I hadn't given him my, my now life. And so this, this is crucial. If, it, if there's pollution in the water at the headwaters of the gospel, making disciples, you can have the best curriculum in the world, but you will not be sharing the kingdom gospel that Jesus came to preach.
Sandy planted that church 60 years ago. Um, it was awesome. He's 147 years old right now. He looks good. Here's two practical things as I was listening to these two guys, because Sandy didn't answer. Uh, these two guys uh, talk. When we start midstream, this is what I, this is me, there's no stats behind this, totally experiential. Number one, you make your congregation or the people that you're leading schizophrenic. Because what works now may not be the cool thing a year from now. And so now you see a cool thing and you like it better than the thing you were doing now. And so you implement that. Well, here's what that does. It starts to break down trust in an organization. In fact, when we implemented our disciple-making strategy after I came to the church, our youth pastor, who has the spiritual gift of criticism, <laughs> and I'm thankful because our discipleship pastor agrees with everything, right? It'd be my pleasure. It'd be my pleasure. My, my student pastor's going, I ain't doing that, you know? After we launched this to them, this is what my student pastor said. He said, how long will this last? And it kind of took me back a little bit, and I said, well, here's my answer. As long as I'm your pastor or till Jesus comes back. He goes, I'm in. Because they were sick of doing the next cool thing. Yeah. And all of that starts midstream, right? But if we don't back up and have a why, that's the first session. Thank you, brother, for that. If we don't have a why, the what doesn't matter. But if you have a why, people will follow. Okay? All right, Sandy, I'm going to ask you a question. Come on. How have you seen the separation of conversion and discipleship lived out in the local church or ministry? The division of conversion and discipleship. I, uh, I was saved on a college campus, Arizona State, and uh, my fraternity brother led me to Christ on Sunday, and Tuesday night I was at a discipleship meeting. So I was bonded, enfolded, modeled a disciple-making model right from the start. They just started telling me, you know, you've been one to Christ to get built up to win others. So win, build, sin was in my DNA. So then I, uh, I get out of ministry. I'm doing some Young Life stuff, and God calls me into the local church where I discovered uh, sit, soak, and sour. And uh, I, I think so much of it went back to this uh, anemic view of what the gospel is. The other thing, uh, I found that the forgiveness only, pray a prayer so you can go to heaven, isn't really the question people are asking. People weren't asking, how do I get to heaven? I was so well equipped to talk to them about how to get to heaven. You know what they're asking? Does my life matter? Is there any meaning in this universe? If God is good, why is there bad stuff? Does he know me? How could I know him? Those are the questions. And, and the full-bodied gospel that we talk about uh, in conversion to discipleship makes it a gospel that answers the bigger questions like Jesus did. So it's, uh, it's, just, it's more thrilling, more satisfying to have a gospel that speaks to the real issues in people's lives, Jim. Uh, we have a guy in our church named Bob, and he, is, uh, he came to faith in Christ at 80 years old. Uh, he's Japanese-American, so his parents were actually in one of the internment camps in California back in World War II. He was a child at that point. Um, so he'd lived 50 years. He's been married, and his wife had been praying for him to come to faith in Christ. So about four years ago, he comes to faith in Christ. As, so as, at 80 years old, um, he comes to faith in Christ, and then we're talking, and I said, Bob, you need to get baptized. And he's like, all right, I'll get baptized. And then I said, well, now... Uh, so he comes to me after a Sunday service. And he goes, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I've been baptized. And he just asked a really simple question. And it's a brilliant question, but he just said, what's next? I'm coming to church every Sunday. 
I'm a Christian and I've been baptized. What's next? And the Bonhoeffer Project gave me an answer for that. I, I was able to say to him, hey, I'm starting a discipleship group here in the next month. Do you want to be a part of this discipleship group? And so we got in on, on the ground level with Bob. And now he's one of the most uh, effective disciple makers because he got sent a, a letter from his life insurance company that said, OK, it's estimated that you have seven years left to live. <laughs> they send those letters? Yeah. So he gets this letter saying he's got seven years left to live. And he's like, I want to make disciples. I want to share the gospel and make disciples with people for the rest of my, my life. It doesn't matter if it's one year or seven years. But the, the question of if you separate the gospel from discipleship, once somebody's become a Christian, there's no real answer. There's no real need to make disciples because I'm already in. But then you discount that whole lifestyle that Sandy's been talking about, the fulfillment life, the free life, um, the life of pain and suffering in some ways that, that Christ calls us to. So now Bob is like one of the most effective disciple makers in our ministry because he came to faith in Christ, was taught the full-bodied gospel, and that means not just believing in something but actually living it out every day, and the transformation in his life is so attractive to other people that they're like, what is it? What's going on in your life? So the guys he's been playing golf with for the last, you know, 40 years, they go, there is something radically different in your life. What is it? And he goes, can I tell you over lunch? And then he's like inviting non-believers into discipleship groups and actually leading them to Christ. It's an amazing thing. So why has this been so predominant? I mean, that's a, that's a huge sociological, even ecclesiological question over the last, what, 40, 50 years. Why has this been? I think one reason is that in, to some degree, Christians have had cultural power to some degree. But the more we move to a first century mentality in our world and in our country, this doesn't work anymore case in point I had uh, we've dealt with transgenderism this year we've done with, dealt with homosexuality this year in our church we've dealt and these were all teenagers we've dealt with kids walking away from their faith and I had a mom come to me and she said well we're really struggling with our high school son I think he was a junior this is last year and he just says he doesn't believe what we believe but he, he'll come to church with us every Sunday but he doesn't believe what we believe and I told him you just have to have faith now, is she wrong? Not really. Is she incomplete? Absolutely. Because this is all she knew. Pray a prayer to go to heaven and come to church and everything will work out. And this guy's going, I don't know if there is a God. If we are not discipling those who claim to be disciples, then how in the world are they going to answer those questions with the people that they love? Right? Which is part of preaching, isn't it? convincing people to be who they already proclaim to be, right? And challenging them to live that out, okay? We've got some, uh, a few minutes left before we're going to do some giveaways, I think. Um, what questions do you have for these guys, for me, for our leadership team regarding this topic? We answered every question, guys. That's awesome. Jim, where does, where does grace fit in on that on that schematic there. That yeah, Sandy answered that. <laughs> Jesus is the coach. He says, anybody can come on my team. It's absolutely free. It's grace. Come on my team. Here's a uniform. Here's the playbook. How stupid to come on the team, get the uniform and the playbook, and sit in the stands. 
Jesus is the commander. He says, anybody can join my army. Come join my army. Here's your sword. Here's your shield. Here's the map of where we're going. How stupid to take your sword and shield and map home and put it in the closet. So that's grace. It's an absolutely free invitation to join the team, to join the army. But there's a purpose. And we haven't been talking about the purpose, which is much more exciting than put it in the closet and come listen to Huddle Talks. Which gets back to the original title for this session, and that is not only the gospel that you preach will determine the disciples that you make, but the gospel you believe determines the disciples you make. And so as people come to faith in Christ and they understand the biblical gospel, they're going to start replicating, multiplying the type of disciple that they've learned to multiply. The negative of that is if it's a non-biblical, non-discipleship gospel, that's what they're going to be making as well. So we're releasing people into the world, not only from a pastoral leadership standpoint, but we're releasing people into the world to do what we've told them to do that isn't a discipleship gospel. And that would be a horrible legacy to leave, I think. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, how are, uh, you mentioned uh, kind of the young student mm-hmm. who's kind of walking away from their faith. We're seeing that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, can you describe a little bit about maybe how this is being pushed down into high school mm-hmm. or into youth or college yeah. to deal with helping strengthen their faith, help them answer the hard questions like, yeah. why, why would a loving God allow suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. And those kind of hard mm-hmm. questions you deal with in apologetics. Right. How are you, how are you um, pushing some of this into that, that zone? I think, and I'll, I'll let you guys answer too, but I think most of that has to do with culture change in your church. And it starts, I think, from preaching and teaching. That if they're hearing the same gospel in every venue in your church, then they're going to be hearing the same gospel in every venue in your church. Uh, One of the things I do with my team, my staff team, is I require them to be in discipling relationships. I'm a servant leader. I want them to have a voice at the table. But one thing I do require of them, if you're going to be on our team, you're making disciples. And we have come up with common language because I think language changes cultures. We have come up with common language that is from preschool to senior adult. We work strategically within the context of our ministry to be to lead our people in a certain direction intentionally. Our youth ministry is not going one direction while our adult ministry is not. And that doesn't mean teach the same curriculum. But what it does mean is that we're preaching and teaching the same thing, centering around the idea of the discipleship gospel. And so when they come to a worship service and hear me, they're hearing the same thing from our youth pastor in a different context, in a different way, right? My, my students in our church think I have a man crush on C.S. Lewis, and it's true. Um, but you know what excites me more than that? They heard me say his name. They're listening. And as they start listening, they're going to ask questions. And again, this mom who just said, you just have to have faith, what is that? It's a discipleship opportunity. Definitely for her son, but for her, right? So anybody? Want to feel that? You know what we're doing uh, in January? You know who's still out there doing this thing? Josh McDowell. Yep. So we got Josh coming in the morning, and all the students, their youth guys are committed to bring him that night. Why is the Bible? Why can't I believe the Bible? Yep. Then in March, I got a creation scientist coming, and he'll speak in the morning, yep. and then everybody will come back that night. For, so we're emphasis on there's facts behind this thing. It's not just a mm-hmm. leap of faith. But mm-hmm. I, So I do think apologetics is yeah. really part of the name of the game right now with kids. Well, and what Bill said in the first session, we have a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's something that we need to be able to articulate. A right? more reasonable faith. A more reasonable faith, exactly. 
And I hear some experiences about maybe dealing with um, someone who has been um, maybe 20 years believing a false gospel um, and, and having to to change them to viewing the kingdom gospel in a different way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even is it is it is it easier for a new convert to to almost raise them on the kingdom gospel or to convert someone who has believed in a false gospel to the kingdom gospel? That's a great question. So. The, the answer I'd give to you on the second thing is, is Bob, you raise him up on the kingdom gospel and he just gets it. He just doesn't know anything any different. So he's actually in my Bonhoeffer cohort right now and he's just so far ahead of the game, but he's only been a Christian for two years because he doesn't have to re- unlearn a bunch of stuff and then relearn a bunch of stuff. He's just going out and making disciples already. Um, you know, the 20-year false gospel um, idea, that, that was me. Like I, I've been in ministry for 20 years and, and, uh, and I, I tried to start making disciples. I came in first experience of being a lead pastor at a church and I'm like, we're going to all make disciples. It's going to be awesome. So I did like a six week like sermon series on disciple making and it was fantastic. Like I was at the top of my game. It was amazing. We bought everybody like the best discipleship curriculum, Greg Ogden's curriculum. It was like 15, 20 bucks a book. We bought like a bunch of them. We had 130 people sign up. It was the most amazing like eight weeks ever. And then within six months, there was two groups left. And, and I realized in that moment, because we had Bill come in and he said one thing that changed everything. And it's kind of the core of what this seminar is all about, this breakout. And he just said, the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. And in that moment, I realized I'd been preaching a f- uh, forgiveness only consumer gospel that makes discipleship optional. So... I don't really need to make disciples because I'm already saved. I'm good to go. So, so the motivation, like it's, you can get people hyped up and inspired, like uh, Dave uh, Clayton was talking about in that main session. You get, we get tons of inspiration, and that's how we normally function as churches. We're just going to get them all hyped up and then get into the next program. That's that's basically what I thought we could do to make disciples, but you can't do it. People won't live a long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson's title of his book. They won't do it. Um, and they won't suffer for it unless they really understand this is part of believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, that I need to die to myself daily and follow Christ, live for, live for Jesus. So, I mean, I was doing ministry for a long time with, with, a, with a discounted gospel or a cheaper gospel. Um, Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace and costly grace. I, I was preaching a cheap grace gospel for many years and it required me to repent of that and stand up in front of my church and basically bill would say don't do this but this is what i did because i didn't know any different at the time but i basically said hey i've been preaching a, a less than gospel from now on this is where we're going and and um we're going to follow jesus no matter what it costs no no conditions no excuses for the rest of our lives are you with me and a good core of our church said yes some didn't and that was okay yeah just 20 years, that's, I have a 190-year-old church, uh, 70 years, and had one of those men, he's 81 now, and came up to our discipleship pastor, and he, it was an accusation, but it was a question. He said, why are you adding to the gospel? And our discipleship pastor said, what are you talking about? I was taught, if I believe these four spiritual laws and I prayed a prayer, that's all I had to do. 
And he said, you guys are taking us in a different direction from the gospel. And, and it gave him an incredible opportunity for discipleship to say, that's part of the gospel, but let me talk to you about the whole good news. Because it leads you into a life of abundant living, which is what Jesus promised, right? As we abide in him through obedience to his commands. That's what he's called us to. I'll start with the easy one and then hand the hard one to them. Um, I would start by saying this, and it's what we said at the beginning, that there's no division between salvation and or conversion and discipleship. So naturally, evangelism is part of this disciple-making strategy because you can't make disciples unless you're sharing the good news of Jesus with people, right? If you're not taking that good news out into the world, sharing what Jesus has done, and Ben's going to go through all this tomorrow morning. Yeah, all this tomorrow morning um, of what that looks like in the larger context of a lost world. And yet what we need to do is when we share the gospel with them, we're sharing a gospel that leads them into following Jesus. And that's the critical piece that I think the evangelical church has missed. And because we've had in southern Brazil, we've had 15,000 people come to Christ over the last six years. Right. But we're walking through the plan of salvation. They're praying a prayer. So I had one of my college students come up to me and go, okay, but if following Jesus is the result of what it means to come to the kingdom, are we bait and switching them? Are we saying, pray a prayer and you'll go to heaven? Oh, now that you came to the service, there are a couple other things we need you to do. Or are we saying, this is the starting line of following a king? And it changes the perspective of how we do evangelism, but there's a heightened sense of that reaching the world. That would, that would be my response. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Bonhoeffer Project and their track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Download a free ebook primer for Bill Hull and Ben Sobel's book, The Discipleship Gospel, by going to discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.